0: And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story, real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: Hi, I'm Lance Roberts with uh, Real Investment Show. I hope you all had a great 4th of July weekend. Uh, Today, we're going to sit here and review a few of the things that we've talked about over the last week, everything from capitalism versus corporatism and more. So hang on, let's get into it. Quite amazing, getting older every minute. Wow, you're an optimist. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Uh, Interesting study out this morning talking about demographics. We now have, in February and March, which is up through the latest data, um, we now have the lowest birth rate on record. I mean, basically, the number of births in America are just dropping off the cliff. Um, And that has a a lot to do with with different things. Uh, You know, of course, there's concerns about you know the ability to support children right people are working long you know waiting longer because of you know potentially getting into a career Uh, if you take a look at the number of millennials still living at home with their parents it's still like about 40 percent of the millennial population still living with parents so you know there's a there was a movie out with matthew mcconaughey a while back and um i can't remember the 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 girl's name that was in it also she was uh, in Sex in the City, she was one of the, the lead characters in Sex in the City, I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, um, the family, Terry Bradshaw's the father and the, the mother, they hire a consultant to try to get Matthew McConaughey out of the house, right? They <laughs> want to get him out of the house and, and get him married off, and so, um, they hire a consultant to try to get him on with life. But this is this is one of the problems that a lot of parents are having is trying to get kids you know, out into the workforce and get them going and and get them in a career. And this has been kind of a change in the dynamic of employment over the course of really the last two decades. And this is not something that just cropped up overnight. This isn't a pandemic problem. This has been going on since the financial crisis. And this is, and of course, if people aren't confident about having a job or having the ability to support a family, or if both partners are having to work just to make ends meet, that delays the potential for having children. People wanna feel a bit more secure about having children, um, you know, and, and kind of a normal process, yes. You know, other things happen, and people have kids all the time. But um, you know, when people are planning to have children, they tend to, they're waiting longer uh, to try to feel more financially secure. This is not something that's going to change anytime soon. Um, we now have the lowest birth rate since the 1940s, and part of that problem really is a is a pyramid. of of problems that expound from that. First of all, in the 1940s, as an example, we had 16 workers paying into social security. Today, we have less than two paying into Social Security. Of course, we talked yesterday a little bit about the $170 trillion problem that exists in Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare going forward. Um, That's a a big part of that problem is people failing to contribute to it, right? They're not working enough to contribute enough into it. We don't have enough workers supporting it. We've got this expanding number of people that are outside the labor force. And yes, there are part part of the people outside the labor force, uh, yes, are retiring. Right. But that's not the the answer that is really solving the whole issue, because when you take a look at the number of people outside the labor force, it's almost 50 percent of the population. That certainly doesn't suggest that 50 percent of America is now retired. Uh, much more when you start to look at the fact that 90% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of income earners, it's hard to suggest that a large number of people that retired are able to actually sustain retirement just on what meager savings they have and Social Security. And this is why we're seeing a lot of people over the age of 65 still in the labor force. Yes, last year, there was a big jump in the number of retirees last year 2020 big jump in the number of retirees they didn't retire voluntarily <laughs> they were asked to retire by companies and and moved off the rolls so those people will likely not stay in retirement for long they'll likely come back into the labor force because simply they don't have enough money and savings to remain retired Uh, in that function, and just simply live off Social Security. Cost of living is rising, and just a good example, this year prices are definitely up, and that's going to become more problematic for Social Security to try to keep up with that rate of, of draw. So demographics, back to the original point, is very important. And as Will Will Rogers once said, he said, demographics are destiny. And that's really kind of the case. If you take a look at Japan as an example, by 2050, the vast majority of their population will be over the age of 65. By 2050 in the United States, a lar- about 50% of the population in the U.S. is going to be over the age of 65. That has very big impacts on financial markets, economic growth, et cetera, because once people get older, um, they become net drawers on assets, not net contributors. So you are gonna have a, a much larger percentage of the population taking money out of the system, investment accounts, stock markets, et cetera, to live on, also, a bigger draw on Social Security benefits and, of course, the, the, the underfunded liabilities of the social welfare, welfare system in the U.S. So there's a lot of demographic problems that are coming down the road because of the fact that people aren't getting out there and having kids. So get to work, <laughs> you know, get to work out there having some more kids. But yeah, this is and, and so this is going to really come back to really twofold, two things. Um, is that looking at immigration? And I'm not talking about immigration the way we're doing it now, where it's just kind of open the board and uh, everybody just kind of comes across. We're talking about merit-based immigration, where you're immigrating people to come in to create businesses, bring capital, um, you know, uh, bring skill sets, etc., that create a an immigration system that leads to stronger economic prosperity, but also helps support the underlying payments into the system right so that you can support the the elderly population as they move through their retirement years and are and are a draw on the financial system as well so part of the demographic problem has to be done domestically by getting people to have more children and the other side has to be done through a merit-based immigration system so this is going to be one of the big challenges uh, both politically and economically really over the course of the next uh, next decade or so. This is, is is gonna have to, the focus is gonna have to become this because the challenge of demographics is something that you can't get around. It's a very deflationary pressure on the overall economy. You'll layer on top of that 30, 40, 50 trillion of debt by the time we get there, and then you see what the real problem is. So those are the, the you know, and you'll hear people talk about this, you know, the the three Ds that will impact the economy and the prosperity of the U.S. over the next 30 to 40 years, the three Ds, demographics, deflation, and debt. Pay attention to those things because those, those really kind of wrap everything up. Very quickly, yesterday, the markets did rise just a little bit and then kind of fell off right at the end of the day. Uh, Fed member Kaplan came out yesterday and says, yeah, if we're going to be hiking rates and tapering sooner than you think, markets didn't like that, kind of pretty much closed where they opened for the day. Importantly, hardly any volume yesterday. So despite the fact that the market spent most of the day in positive territory, very little positive action in terms of people actually contributing capital. So again, we're still on this sell signal right now, and, and markets still kind of contained here. Markets look to open up this morning. The question will be this morning, can they you know, challenge all-time highs today? That's going to be one of the, the first questions. Secondly, is keep a watch on the volume of participation. Is it really... There and and that really kind of comes into this whole bigger picture of kind of what happens next here uh, with the markets over the next week or so. We'll talk some more about this in particular on three minutes on markets and money today. Uh, so tune into our our, web, our YouTube channel on our website realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back.
0: aliens investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch & Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com. For our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care, July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And what was so this morning? It is... uh wrapping up the month of june here we are already and uh, actually it's gonna be a lot cooler here over the next uh, couple of days right yeah. it's gonna be in the 80s mm-hmm. which is kind of seasonally cool here in texas it for, is. you know in houston austin you know 80 degrees is kind of kind of cool um for this time of year for june right yeah. um and in texas 99.6 percent of households have air conditioning in Texas. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it's just hotter in blazes in Texas. So, Seattle, 44% of homes have A.C. Really? And it was 108 degrees in Seattle over oh, the weekend. Oh, man. Yeah, actually, they had uh, hit. I think they even hit temperatures higher than that. But there's this kind of heat dome that's moving across the country right now. Mm-hmm. So Seattle, it was so hot. How hot
0: was it, Lance? It was
1: so hot, and Tifa couldn't go out and riot. So <laughs> I mean, it was that hot, and it was like this is too hot to go out and riot. I mean, it's just done. So no, I'm just te- teasing. But that's how hot it is, right? So there's the, there's this kind of this really kind of weird mix going on in the, in the country right now. You've got really hot Seattle, really hot northeast. There's a the heat dome over the northeast. <laughs> And here we are, 80 degrees with all the AC. So, <laughs> hey, we're cool. <laughs> <If> we're cool. <laughs> uh, speaking of cool and being environmentally responsible, um, ESG investing. Uh, I've got a new article out on our website this morning called uh, ESG investing, the great Wall Street money heist. And this has been kind of the new thing, right? You need to be socially responsible with your investing, right? So, ESG is environmental Social and governance. Now, these are things that are not on the balance sheet, right? These are how does the company, you know, run its plan? How do they are they environmentally responsible? Are they socially responsible? Do they do these type of things? And so, how do you measure these things? Is really kind of a grab bag of ideas um, in terms of great talking points. Oh yes, we've evaluated Apple and we found them to be ESG compliant. Okay, do they actually report their books according to gap standards? That would be governance, right? <laughs> the answer would be no. Um, you know, environmental, social. How do you judge that, right? How do you judge their footprint? But this is the this is the new thing, right? So there was a demand by individuals wanting to invest in environmentally, socially, government you know government responsible. Companies, and so Wall Street said, "There's a demand for that. Okay, we'll make your product." And so they did. ESG is one of the forefronts of BlackRock now. Um, Larry, you know, Larry Fink, the guy that uh, runs around BlackRock all the time, talking about ESG every chance he gets. And why would he do that? Because it makes money. And it makes a lot of money selling you products labeled ESG. Um, You know, we've we've, uh, a good friend of ours on the show, Keith Klein, um, health, nutrition, fitness guru. We've had him on the show a few times talking about how to eat right, right? Make better, bad choices. And just because you get something and he has a whole speech on this. Truth in labeling. Right? Just because something says it's fat-free does not mean it's fat-free. Just because something says it's healthy for you, like healthy choice, doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy for you. Because it's all about labeling requirements and how you meet those labeling requirements. And those things aren't always clear. So you've got to really understand what you're getting into. You've got to do your own homework... When it comes to eating, to make sure you're actually eating healthy, because you may think you're eating healthy, but you may be eating something that is really very bad for you. Like beyond meat. <laughs> it's not healthy for you. Same thing goes for this ESG investing. Let me show you something here real quick. Um, there, There's there's no universal set of rules for ESG risk. Um Eco Business really just wrote a story on this recently. He said, for example, deforestation is a major driver of climate change. No doubt about it, right? You're going to cut down all the trees in the world. You're going to have climate change. You would think it's being used as a filter to ensure companies and ESG-labeled funds are not turning a blind eye to deforestation. But you would be wrong. Carbon Tracker, an industry think tank, found that 78% of mutual fund providers offered ESG investments. However, none specifically excluded deforestation risk, not a single one actively pl- priced in climate risk. Let me show you an example. Here's two funds, and I'm going to tell you which these fu- what these two funds are. One is ESG. The other is an S&P index. These are the top 10 holdings of an ESG fund and the S&P 500. Top 10 holdings of one, Apple, uh, American Express, BlackRock, Facebook, AppleBet, uh, Google, Home Depot, 3M, Microsoft Corp, NVIDIA, and Tesla. The other, Apple, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, Facebook, Google, Johnson Johnson, J.P. Morgan, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla. Surprisingly, top 10 stocks very close to being the same thing. So which one's which? How do we know which one we're investing in that's ESG compliant and and the one that isn't, right? This is the problem that you don't know. But you're trying to figure out because you want to be socially responsible. So what exactly are we paying for here? And it's really kind of more of a scam than a benefit. Uh, BNP Paribas, the largest bank in the Eurozone, never wastes an opportunity to boost their green credentials. As an example, it's also the world's top banker of offshore oil and gas over the last five years and managed to increase fossil fuel lending since the Paris Agreement. That's the same BNP that says, why are we doing sustainable investing? Quite simply, it's worth it. They peddle ESG products. But why is it worth it? Because, well, they charge more for it. Now, I just showed you two funds. And it's interesting because when you look at these two funds in particular, who's it really good for? Is it good for the issuer or is it good for you, the investors who buying it? EcoBusiness said, investment managers and banks are taking advantage of our collective willingness to help fight climate change because ESG space is, to put it mildly, a zoo. Epic greenwashing is everywhere. Out of 253 funds that switched to an ESG focus in 2020, 87% of them rebranded their funds by calling them ESG. Not one of them changed their holdings. And here's the other part of this. So I'm now going to show you what these two funds were, and the expense ratios associated with. Remember, just a second ago, I showed you these two funds, and I said one of them's an ESG fund, one of them's the S and P 500 index, and I showed you the holdings. Well, here are the two funds. The one that held BlackRock as the third largest holding was the BlackRock iShares USA ESG Select Fund. Apple, American Express, BlackRock. Now, isn't that interesting? BlackRock, who's selling an ESG fund, has their company in the top three holdings. So every time that you buy the ESG ETF select fund, you are also buying their stock, causing their stock price to do what? Go up. They're also happy to charge you 25 basis points for their ESG fund, which has exactly for the most part, the same top 10 holdings as buying the S&P 500 index fund that you pay 0.09% for. So roughly you're paying three times the amount to own the name ESG, but the holdings are virtually the same. And you say, well, Lance, you know, the, the, the performance, right? Really, this doesn't come down to holdings. This comes down to performance. Okay, you know what? I'll bite. It's all about performance, right? So if you take a look at this uh, scattergram chart, which has an R-squared of 97%. This is the 10-day return correlation between the 0.09% fee to own the S&P 500 Index Fund versus the 0.25% fee to own the BlackRock ESG Fund. The returns are virtually identical. So you're paying a whole lot more to own a fund that does exactly the same thing as owning the S&P 500 and actually has the same holdings. (laughs) So, again, this, this is my point, though, about all of this, is that you've got to be careful with Wall Street. Wall Street's a business, just like any other business on the planet. And when you start demanding something, Wall Street's going to provide it to you. I want to buy ESG funds. Okay, here you go. We'll just take all of our old funds, which really haven't begun a lot of money flows lately, which is where we charge a fee and make money. We'll jack up the fee there. We'll slap ESG on it. We won't change our holdings at all, but you'll buy it, and that makes us more money. You know, this is part of the problem. With this whole idea that capitalism is broken. No, capitalism's working very well. You just don't like the outcome because everything you're doing because you think you're doing this thing for your own benefit is actually benefiting those people that are selling you the product. And so we get all upset that Wall Street's making billions of dollars and we're not. And all they're doing is repackaging stuff and just selling it to you because, you know, honestly, in a lot of cases, you're too naive to know the difference. Because we don't do our homework, right? We just jump on the bandwagon. Everybody says, oh, we should all be socially responsible. So let's go out and buy ESG funds. What are you buying? Why are you buying it? How does it fit into your portfolio? How does this matter to you? And is it really creating Any type of real social benefit, if companies aren't really changing their footprint, aren't really changing their their program, so to speak, and they're just running around calling themselves greener, I mean, what have you actually accomplished? Yeah, you got to be careful what you pay for. You got to be careful what just because Wall Street tells you something or just because the media tells you something. You've got to be careful about what you're actually paying for because in a lot of cases, you're paying way too much for the same thing you could have bought a whole lot cheaper and probably got better performance out of it. Be right back after the break.
0: You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July I, 8th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. So just wrapping up our conversation on the ESG a second ago. And, uh, and, and, and again, look, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Uh, my whole point is, is that Wall Street is a business and they're willing to sell you a product. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting what you're paying for. you got to do your homework. You know, there's no rules or guidelines for being environmental, being socially conscious, being, you know, being gov- you know having proper governance, right? How you run your business. You know, uh, there's some pretty easy guidelines that you could establish though, right? Do, do you follow GAAP accounting rules or not? Right? Do you actually contribute to society or not? And are you environmentally friendly? Right? Are you doing things to be more environmentally friendly? And there's really no guidelines. I mean, how do you, you know, in, in a lot of these cases where you're talking about companies operating, you know, Apple is a technology company, as an example. Are they really environmentally friendly? You have to really get in to see how their operations are operating in China where there's really kind of no rules for being environmentally friendly, right? Where they're manufacturing stuff, where they're producing these products. Are they being environmentally friendly? And and that's the homework you've got to do. That's, and that's, but here, but the, 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 the bottom line of this though, is this is capitalism just because they're selling you a product that may or may not be what it's represented to be. That's the game, right? That's, that's the whole thing about Wall Street. There's their job. You want more product, they're going to bring to you. SPACs, electric cars, whatever it is, you want to buy more of it, they're going to bring you a product. Doesn't mean you're going to buy a good product, but they're going to bring it to you. And this is what happens at the peak of bull markets. I had a chart in this weekend's newsletter. If you go to our website, uh, click on our newsletter link, there's a chart of the, the number of money-losing companies being brought public the most since 1999. Now, you would think that a company going public would be a profitable, growing company. No, 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 no. There's a demand right now. You want to buy these companies. You want these new up-and-coming names. You want companies that are, you know, kind of on the cutting edge of the new technology. It doesn't matter if they're making money. We're going to make them public and let you buy into them, and then the problem's yours. When a company comes public and they sell their shares at $30 Whatever the market is, when they come to market, it's not where the stock opens up that day. Their public offering price is set the day they come to market. So ABC Company, their price is set at $30 a share. The trade goes off. The first trade hits the deck at $70 a share because there's so much demand for it. The company doesn't get $70 a share. They get $30. That's what they went public at. That's what they get doesn't matter what happens after that in the secondary market. That's between you and the other buyer seller. That's capitalism, though. Our article out on Friday, as I told you last week, was part one of our two-part piece on capitalism versus corporatism. A lot of people railing, capitalism sucks, right? Capitalism, corporations are profitable and they don't pay their fair share. It's not what capitalism is. Let's define what capitalism is. Capitalism provides a level playing field for entrepreneurs to offer goods and services that produces income and profits. Equitably distributing profits is not capitalism's role. Ensuring that all participants get treated fairly and to some extent uh, regulating personnel and corporate endeavors and, and is the role of society in general and government in particular. So when you say something like, well, capitalists, capitalism sucks and capitalists are terrible at sharing their profits. That's not what capitalism's designed to do. Never has been. An economic system where profits, goods, and services are shared equally is not capitalism, that's socialism. The different structure. But when we talk about capitalism, what Wall Street is doing, as an example, with ESG investing is capitalism. They're taking advantage of demand and they're making a lot of money from it because you're willing to pay three times as much to own a fund that says ESG versus just buying an index, which has exactly the same holdings and performance for a third of the cost. So certainly Wall Street's going to promote ESG investing in that you need to be green because they're making three times as much money for it and in an in environment where fee compression, you know, everybody's pushing down the cost, free trading, we need lower costs and lower fees. In a market where prices are being constantly pushed down, they got to figure out a better way to get a higher, to extract a higher cost from you and you'd be willing to pay it. ESG is working right now for now. Eventually you'll catch on, you'll demand lower fees for ESG too, and then it'll be something else. But this is the differential between capitalism and corporatism. And this is what we start to delve into in part one of this article, is that we've shifted this idea of capitalism, which works and continues to work, at creating wealth for individuals, and have shifted that meaning into corporatism, which is where these publicly traded corporations are taking advantage of the system through share buybacks and a variety of other endeavors that have made the executives inside these companies exceedingly wealthy, the top 1%. And that's who we're mad at. Because, you know, when we talk about capitalism, we're not talking about your next door neighbor who owns the, the you know, the CrossFit gym down the street. It makes, makes a decent living running his business, and we're not talking about your other neighbor who owns the, the salon at the other end of the street, and she works hard every day and, and, and does a great job and runs a business and makes money from it, so and supports their families. Right? We're not—that's t- capitalism, but we don't talk about those guys because they're just small businesses, right? We don't care about the small businesses. That's not—that's not the capitalism that sucks. It's just the other capitalism, right? But that's what capitalism is, and we're not talking about that. And we're not separating out the differential between what capitalism is and still is versus what is broken in the system, which is this corporatism. And the corporatism, we're sponsoring it. You know, we all want to point at the major corporations and say, oh, they're bad. They're not sharing. They're not being. It's not their job to share. But we also don't have to go out and chase their stock prices higher and keep pushing their prices up every time they announce an earnings report that (laughs) they haven't grown revenue in five years. But, hey, let's run their price up another 30 percent because we're all making money in the market. Right. You can't you can't be a contributor to the problem and then complain about the problem. Kind of like being the fireman that sets the house on fire, then shows up to put it out. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But that's what we're doing. We complain about this, and we're and now we've got all these people railing in the streets because you know corporatism is is terrible. Well, they call it capitalism, is terrible, and we need to tear the whole thing down and we rebuild with socialistic norms. You're not going to like the outcome. And what I find exceedingly humorous about all this is that while we're all talking about tearing down capitalism and turning into socialism, we're all using the products that capitalism makes. You know, we all, we're all we all sitting here complaining about capitalism on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and social media and making those companies billions of dollars in the process by looking at all the ads that come along as we're complaining about all the problems of capitalism. Capitalism and corporatism on social media. Oh, and by the way, we're also doing that on our Apple iPhones and our Google Android phones, making those companies billions of dollars using the technology to use the Facebook, the Twitter and (laughs) everything else to complain about making those companies billions of dollars. Do you see the problem here? You say you don't like capitalism and corporatism, but you're not willing to give up what it provides you. If you want to fix capitalism and corporatism, we can get rid of Facebook, Google, Apple. We can get rid of them real quick. All we got to do is just stop buying their product. They'll be out of business in no time. But see, you don't want to do that. So you can't be the guy that sets the fire, then show up as as the fireman and say, oh, don't worry, I'll put it out. You can't do that. Are there problems with capitalism as it exists today? Of course. Is capitalism broken? No. And the reason you know capitalism isn't broken is because every day all you have to do is turn on the media and see what's going on in the stock market. It's capitalism at work. Companies are selling product, making earnings, creating jobs. That's capitalism. And people are participating in it. Those that aren't are the ones that are complaining about it. What's stopping you from participating in capitalism? Absolutely nothing. You can go out today, form an LLC for about 100 bucks, and start a business doing whatever you want to do. And there's nobody that's going to stop you. That's capitalism. You can participate in the capitalist system if you choose to. But you've got to be willing to take the risk. You've got to be willing to put in the time. And you've got to put in the work. And you're going to starve a whole lot in the process, but you'll build wealth eventually. you just got to be willing to do it. Be right back after the break. Don't go away.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com. Advice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July 8th at noon, RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
1: All right, so getting ready to wrap up the show this morning, of course. Be um, sure by the website. We went through uh, this weekend's newsletter kind of talking about, you know, kind of the evolution of our buy signal, how we got here, and why we started just taking some, you know, raising a little bit of cash and taking some profits last week and just kind of rebalancing portfolios here a little bit. Again, you know, we are just kind of discussing this whole idea of seasonality and And, you know, there is an importance to understanding seasonality. There's long-term cycles as well, uh, 70-year cycles. Um, You know, the problem is, is that whenever you start talking about long-term anything, right, things don't always work out exactly the way these cycles suggest. Now, do they eventually? Yeah, pretty much. For instance, you go back in history, there have been... Five bull markets, and there have been four bear markets. And guess what? They alternate. You have a bear market. So you have a bull market, then you've got a bear market, bull market, bear market, bull market, bear market, right? And right now we're in a bull market, which means that what? Well, we've got a bear market coming, a real one. March 2020 was not a bear market. It was a correction. So we've got a real bear market coming, one that's going to last, you know, 16, 18 months. It's going to wipe out 50, 60% of portfolios whole variety of bad stuff coming. When's that going to happen? Who knows? So if you go to cash today, trying to avoid something that may not happen for a year or two or three. And this is what has happened with a lot of people after the crash of of 2008. Right. We have people coming into our office all the time saying, I've been in cash since 2009. I want to get back in now. Really? Now? (laughs) Okay. So you can't worry about these things. You just have to manage them and, and trying to time them. I got an email over the weekend from a guy. It's like, you know, you know, I'm ready to retire and I'm just going to sit on the sidelines till we get a correction. and I'm going to buy in. OK. Could be a couple more years. Could be three years. Could be four years. Could be five years. I don't know when the correction is coming. Nobody does. Right. We know we'll get one. But just don't know when. In the meantime, you pass up a lot of opportunity costs by worrying about the next crisis or correction or crash, right? You just have to be prepared to manage for it and navigate that risk when it does occur. And you'll have plenty of evidence, right? In January and February, you can go to our website and and check this out. In January, February of 2020, we were warning about a correction. And we we wrote a couple articles called This is Nuts, Why We're Reducing Risk. And March, I think March the tenth, right at the peak of the market, we wrote an article talking about on the cusp of a bear market. Everybody's like, "Not gonna have a bear market, stupid." Well, four weeks later, it wasn't so stupid, right? Well, you know this is this is the risk of markets, but you have to navigate these things. But this goes back to our conversation we were having in the last segment about benchmarking to some index, right? This is the problem with buy and hold strategies. Buy and hold strategies are fine. I got nothing against a buy and hold strategy. Put your money into an index fund and just ride the market. The problem is, though, is that at some point you're going to spend a whole lot of time just getting back to where you were previously. And that's not really the same thing as making money. And the problem with the buy and hold strategy is that if I don't sell at the top, I can't buy stuff cheap at the bottom because I never raised any cash. I'm just writing it up and down. So, you know, not worrying about what an index does from one day to the next. If you can if you can separate that out and, and turn the television off, you know, I don't have, the only time I have CNBC on is when I'm in the studio. Because it's a distraction, All the nonsense that they talk about on on financial media all day is a distraction. It's going to make you do all the wrong things emotionally. You're going to run out by Bitcoin because Elon Musk today said, hey, he may start taking Bitcoin again. And then you're going to turn around and sell it when he (laughs) he turns around the next day and says, I've changed my mind. You know, you have all these companies that pay for stuff in the financial media to promote whatever products, goods, or services they're selling. And so while you may chase them temporarily and do well, most of the time you're going to wind up buying them way too high. ARK Investments was a good example of that. Last year, she was the darling of Wall Street. This year, she's the villain. Right? 30% decline will do that to you. So, again, worrying about what the market does or what one stock does or whatever is going to lead you to make emotionally very bad decisions long term. It may not hurt you today, may not hurt you tomorrow, may not hurt you next week, may not hurt you next month. But at some point, you're going to experience a very sharp and devastating loss of capital, especially chasing stocks like AMC, GameStop, those type of things you're going to experience a very devastating loss of capital that is very, very difficult to repair. And it's just not worth it. What is worth it? Picking a rate of return that is reasonable and achievable over the long term. What's reasonable well, expecting 6 to 8% a year is not reasonable, not in an economy that's growing at 2%. From 2000 to 2013, the rate of return on stocks was zero. We're now set up for another decade of near zero rates of return, with virtually however you want to dice it valuation-wise. So trying to attain 6 to 8% rates of return require you to take on an exceptional amount of risk to generate that rate of return in an environment that's not geared to deliver that rate of return. Which means at some point you're going to pay a heavy price. What's achievable? A rate of return. That exceeds the rate of inflation. Why do I care about the rate of inflation? Because your job as an investor is not to try to build wealth. Now, now listen to me carefully here. Your job is what you do every day. That's what you go to do at work, right? You go to work, you work your eight hours a day, your 10 hours a day. If you're like me, it's 14 to 16 hours a day. But you do your job and you get paid for it. That's where you grow your wealth. And you do that by saving money. So what's the job of investing? To make sure that your savings adjust for the rate of inflation to maintain purchasing power parity in the future. In other words, your $100,000 in the bank today will buy you $100,000 worth of goods and services 30 years from now when you get ready to retire. So your real benchmark rate is really nothing more than inflation. And at 2% inflation, you you don't have a lot of hard work to do. You don't got to take a lot of risk to do that. Am I saying you should benchmark for 2%? No. I'm saying is that's a reasonable and achievable rate of return, and that should be your base goal. Now, if you can adjust your returns to create some incremental increases, great. Nothing wrong with that. But it has to be a reasonable assumption based on economic growth, inflation, and dividends. So if the economy is growing at 2% and inflation is growing at 3%, that's a negative 1% growth in the econ- in, in the markets over the next 10 years, plus, in, plus dividends at 2 for example. So you're looking at 1% to 2% rates of return. Reasonable and achievable. Those are your benchmarks. Outside of that, what happens on television or what happens on some single stock or whatever else doesn't matter the goal is not to lose money right your primary goal is capital preservation because if i'm spending all my time just trying to recover my lost capital i'm not making money and really investors are way too cavalier about investing you know they treat the markets like a casino look Everybody likes to go to Vegas, right? I go to Vegas and I, I bet on, you know, craps or blackjack, whatever it is. If I lose money, it's like, oh, well, you know, I lost a couple hundred bucks, whatever it is. That's one thing. When you lose the title to your house, that's another thing entirely, <laughs> right? But we treat the, the financial markets Like Vegas, is like we lose a bunch of money. It's like, oh, well, it was just just money. You worked hard for that money. Man, you go to work every day and you pay taxes on that money to invest it. And then you blow it on some stupid investment and you go, well, mm, oh, well, it was just money. I can go make some more. You can. And this is why 80% of Americans can't retire because they don't have any money in the bank. reasonable and achievable goals that's all that matters it doesn't matter what your neighbor's doing it doesn't matter you know i get i get calls from people like well my next door neighbor is buying this and he's just making a boatload of money you know how many times i have heard this story over the years in 1999 man everybody was calling like oh my neighbor's doing this my neighbor's doing that my best friend bought a porsche trading yahoo in 1999 right By the end of 2000, the Porsche was all he had left. (laughs) That got sold.
0: 2008,
1: everybody's buying houses. End of 2008, not so much. Don't worry about what your neighbor's doing. Odds are seriously high he's going to lose a lot of money sooner rather than later. You don't want to be in that camp. You want to be the guy that, after the fact, your neighbor comes to you and says, man... Wish I would have listened to you. Wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website. Our latest article is out talking about the Fed starting its taper talk. are going to hear more from them this week with the FOMC meeting. And, of course, that's going to really start to set up and drive markets here over the next couple of months. What they say and their outlook could have a lot of an impact on the markets. Markets are hanging out, kind of waiting for that, too. So we'll see what happens. Get by the website. That article up on the website. Along with our latest newsletter, the Evolution of our buy signals and what we're doing now. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click on the newsletter link, or our latest blog post. It's all there for you. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.